Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. All right. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Will Corona Pilgrim. Will is an American film writer, director, and comic book writer who is most notable for his work on the Marvel Cinematic Universe comic tie-ins, and the action horror short film No Touching he created with his colleague Adam Davis, starring stunt industry all-stars Zoe Bell and Heidi Moneymaker. So, Will, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. Tell us, our first question on the show is always, where are you in the world right now? I want to guess you're in L.A. Yeah, I'm in L.A. County for sure. I'm in uh, the Burbank area, so just a little north of the hill of the deeper L.A. side. But yeah, it's it's nice and an atypical gray, cloudy day for us SoCal people. So people are losing their minds. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's also gray and about 80 degrees out here. So uh, we almost have LA, L.A. weather in, the, uh, yeah, in New York City. In the same zone. So you do a lot of things. How do you describe who you are and what you do to, let's say, someone, uh, you're in L.A. at an industry party, Someone walks up to you. What do you do? What do you say? What do I do when I say in an industry party? Wow, that's a, that's a <laughs> hyper-specific, interesting <laughs> way to say it. Uh, you know, I typically say that I am a writer-director because I am a writer-director and producer. Lately, I've done a lot of work in comics, so I also say I'm a comic book writer. But the real kind of crux of when I'm trying to explain kind of the, the one thing that holds it all together is extended experience right now. Uh, which is interesting because that that means a lot of things to a lot of different people on on the industry side of things, especially as brands have kind of grown beyond themselves so much so that they need almost shepherds or ushers to take these uh, narrative experiences such as films or video games and stuff of that ilk and then bring them into new experiences. If it's turning comics into film or if it's turning films into VR experiences or theme park rides, if it's any little thing, the, the VR experiences and AR, and it's just, it goes in a lot of different directions. And certain games have this kind of market cornered because of the 30 hours of gameplay. And it feels like everything, everybody wants more of the same, but just an extension of it. It's, it's, it's a very fascinating time to be looking at brands all across the industry. But I like to think of myself as someone who can walk those worlds because I've worked so long in the business side and the film and creative development side. But I've also learned to, make it myself a uh, an expert on specific criteria like working with marvel as long as i did and working at the marvel cinematic universe in particular made it kind of my my job to be that kind of expert on research and the characters and what we were building and what the universe was doing so that we could tell more stories like as you had mentioned the marvel cinematic universe like the comic tie-ins and then anything that went beyond that so yeah i would say extended universe ambassador i guess (laughs) as far as extended experience did you have any experience in that going into working for marvel what was your experience before working there how did they hire you for this particular role like how did you get into this 
I mean, that's that's kind of like the the, the origin story of my, my superhero journey. Uh, it was really I had I had gone to film school at Cal State Northridge, uh, and I had done some film development internships. So I'd learned how to do script coverage, and I learned a lot about the the film writing development process, which was very fascinating at some smaller production companies. And then from there, I had interned at a little company in Beverly Hills that said it was Marvel and called itself Marvel Studios. The internship was even listed at Gmail. So of course, I was a little more than dubious that it was actually Marvel. Uh, but then I got there and it, and it turned out, yep, that Avi Arad and Feige and, and Ari and, and everybody was there uh, saying that, yeah, we have the West Coast division of Marvel Comics and we're the movie studios working on Spider-Man and, and all the and X-Men and Fantastic Four and everything that you're aware of. Uh, and we're also going to start building up our own. We just secured some financing, so we're going to do our own films as well. So at that time, I was interning. Uh, a position became available as I was ending my college career or finishing my college career, and uh, I became the research and development assistant. So it was film development and research. So it was always fun to be like, I'm the R&D guy for a comic-turned-movie studio. It was a fascinating journey. As the movies, as everyone well knows, they kind of exploded, and, and the interconnectivity of that particular brand allowed these new experiences, to, the appetite for these experiences, specifically from the publishing side, wanting to tell some more tie-in content. Uh, and that's where we were able to kind of open up the doors a little bit to the Wonka factory and, and try and tell some kind of notable stories as we could. And, and that's kind of became the beginning, the underpinnings of the brand extension. Now, I've, I've done a few things since then, but that was kind of the origins of it. You mentioned some brief examples of VR and theme park rides. Can you break down examples of the extended experiences that you worked on? Uh, sure. I mean, I one of the most notable and, and most public is the um, the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout ride at Disneyland. And that that's probably my favorite one to mention, just because I never saw myself ever. I mean, you, you always think like, oh, I'd love to work for Disney or work at the theme parks one day. I'm a big fan of the park, being from L.A. and going down to the parks every time I got a chance. So being able to be invited to those conversations and work as kind of uh, a story consultant and that kind of basis for the studios for something so wonderful as Guardians uh, was really kind of a, a treasure. The, another great experience was the um, the Avengers Station that I believe is a standing exhibit in at the Luxor now. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's kind of like a interactive exhibit with all the props and the and the uh, the characters. It was done by Victory Hill. So this started as a kind of like a what do they call it like edutainment? I think was the buzzword that was going around. Where it's a lot of people don't know that a majority of the science, the fictional science in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is actually based on real world science. Uh, the arc reactor is actually based on the tokamak reactor technology. Uh, the tesseract is is a mathematical probability, and there's a lot of things like that. And, and Bifrost is the Einstein Rosen bridge. Uh, and all these concepts that they bring up a lot, sometimes are brought up actually in the movies themselves, but a lot of people don't know that's actually based on very factual scientific you know, theories and facts. And that was what was cool is there's a department or a nonprofit that a lot of studios work with called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Uh, and a gentleman by Rick Lovett over there uh, kind of puts everyone and all the filmmakers and the creatives in touch with these science, actual scientists, like actual astrophysicists and engineers and things of that ilk so that there can be some kind of uh, a baseline of truth to the fiction, which helps it kind of stand apart as a fictional universe. I think I think that's what helped ground it a bit. And that was obviously led from the beginning with Favreau and the, and the Iron Man team. So what ended up happening for this um, this Victory Hill exhibit is they wanted to kind of 
merge that even more and make a kind of like a shield site, kind of like a bunker, mm-hmm. where you're training to become experts on all the sciences behind every individual Avenger. And so it goes into uh, the engineering of uh, Iron Man's armors. It goes into the astrophysics of the Thor universe. It goes into gamma radiation and wh- how, what actually builds the Hulk. And they, they built these intense, intense uh, drafts of the actual fictional science you know, there's so much real science blended with the fictional science that if you weren't even a scientist like me, I'm not a scientist, you start believing it all. You know, you just go, oh, I guess so we could make a Hulk if we wanted, right? No. Oh, no, we can't. We can't do that. That's not real. OK. Uh, so what was cool about that is it made this museum like experience and a walkthrough interactive experience where you could, quote unquote, train with S.H.I.E.L.D., but also learn a lot and experience the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a way that was deeper and very truly extended. Uh, and it was done fictionally in a way that felt as if it if you walked out of avengers one i believe at the time it was avengers one you would walk into this bunker and still feel like you're a part of that world but in a very real physical space which was just crazy balls (laughs) how did you uh, even come up with the idea for that was there a, a need that was identified and then you filled that need or how did you land on this idea i was i i didn't come up with this idea this idea i believe was brought by the um, there was a live entertainment team with Brian Crosby and a lot of gentlemen at the Marvel Entertainment side that, that had brokered a deal with Victory Hill for the license, and then I was put in touch with them as a as kind of the creative consultant side because of my experience with the very physical research and, and the deep dives of the characters and the science itself through all the films. They used me as kind of a touch point to, to help guide and shepherd the uh, the creative, which was just so fantastic. It really was a blast. And so a big part of your role was kind of creative fact-checking. What did the research process actually look like? Man, uh, you know, people joke, but it is reading a lot of comics. I mean, not not in the in kind of, a, oh, I'm just hanging around, you know, in my basement. <laughs> no, no, that's a horrible. I'm not, I'm not even going to say that. That's such a bad cliche. I'm not even going that way. It's not just hanging around reading a bunch of boxes of comics for nothing. You're actually reading with purpose. So a lot of times when we were developing the films, we would create kind of like care packages for creatives we would want to work with. So when you're doing something like that for people, and especially at the time, not enough people knew about the characters we were building and even characters as, as huge as who, people like Iron Man now. So we had to take 60 or 70 years worth of comics or 50 or 60 years at a time and kind of distill the key notes or the key beats that the filmmakers wanted to make. So that process of just kind of working it through, and, and of course the fan sites were a huge help on doing kind of a litmus test of what people really loved or what really struck up the chord for the character for them. So we use that as kind of like a beginning divining rod to, to kind of dive in. And of course, I had my own personal preferences of, of storylines I liked about varying characters. So from there, we would just build these care packages of kind of like Xeroxes or, or, or reproductions of the comics in these binders to hand to people. And, and do, once you started doing that for as many storylines, superpowers, uh, characters, side characters, love interests, villains, you know, it really started painting a very intricate web of uh, narrative that we were able to use as the movies continued. Because again, when you have an interconnected universe, nothing's ever wasted. So you got to just kind of build and build this knowledge base of a fictional universe. As any true fan of like of Star Wars or any of those other uh, of properties that really keep going and beyond what they're originally intended, especially when you look at the expanded universe of Star Wars or what was the expanded universe and is now the new version of that, whatever we're calling it. (laughs) 
Tell us about the prelude books. I know that your Marvel credits list you as writing a ton uh, of the prelude comics. Do you want to walk us through what those are, how they related to your role working on Extended Experience, if that's tied together or not? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's literally tied together. I think uh, because we were working on the research and development of all the films themselves, and we knew we wanted to do these, the, the intent was always to tell kind of like the quote-unquote cutscenes. The stuff that we couldn't film for whatever reason, but we really had strong uh, storytelling ties to. We really wanted the fans to get to experience it beyond that of a of a deleted scene, you know. And everyone goes into the to the canon versus not canon of it all, but it really was just to keep that experience tied to the films, like have the tone and and the voices of the uh, the films translate into well done adaptations or in between storylines or side adventures of a lot of the characters we were working so hard to bring to the screen. And so my job on the business, on the, on the development side, was kind of looking at it like an editor and trying to find kind of the, the safe guardrails that, because again, these were made in tandem with the features that we were making. So for a company that's notoriously, you know, not shy, but doesn't want to put something out there unless it's finished, we had to really walk through the creative with a fine tooth comb for anything that was considered tie-in or anything even tangential tie-ins, like uh, there would be co-promotions with things like Dr. Pepper or little comics that were made for various brands that we would have to make a ton of guidelines to make sure that they understood, this is not the classic universe, this is not the same Iron Man you've known for 50 years, this is the one that just came out in 2008. And while I was doing that, uh, I was working with a lot of the editors on the tie-in comments because early on, I was not writing them. I was just kind of the, the again, the creative shepherd, making sure that the characters are being represented like we want them to, or, or that everyone's really kind of happy with the adaptation and, and the process that at a certain point, uh, Bill Roseman, who's still at Marvel, he's over on the game side now, was my editor or was the editor on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he said, you know, you keep pitching these ideas for us to tell. Why don't, why don't you just write them? And I said, well, pff, okay, sure. You know, I, as a kid who wanted to work in comics, it was kind of like the dream come true. So being the expert of the cinematic universe from a story, you know, from the insider's view and being able to then write some fun new uh, comics and by the world's estimation, I, I thought that was a real kick in the ass. Uh, so that kind of became both. It kind of became like working very closely with the editors to make sure we make the best comic product but also working closely with the uh, the filmmakers and making sure that we're not spiraling into a story that could be a future storyline for the for the series, you know? So it was, it was a really fine line to walk, but also there were some really cool, uh, you know, breadcrumbs we were able to leave within the series. One of my favorite ones was the uh, the Infinity War tie-in, which got into a little bit more about the, the Bucky Barnes and Shuri uh, helping cleanse him of all his of, of the bad programming that Hydra had done. I was really excited to get to, to put that as just even just a quick beat. How does a prelude uh, compare in both its storytelling as well as the way that it's made to a non-prelude comic? Is there a different way in which you go about creating the comic and telling a story? You mean like kind of in the format or or in the in the story itself, both. creatively? format is the format that's that was probably like the trial by fire that i had to face was learning how to not only you know make the comics but kind of really do the best that the medium could could offer and that means a lot of different things because a lot of that's dependent on the artists which i was so fortunate to work on so many with so many creative artists over the, the many years and then we started we hearken back to a process that even Stan Lee kind of made. It's called the Marvel Method, uh, quote-unquote Marvel Method. They call it that because uh, I think it was the way that comics were written by by Stan back in the day with all the editors and the writers. It was Stan and Jack. 
And he would basically lay out kind of like the broad beats of the story on a document and say, like, this is going to happen. This guy flies in, then that happens. And then Jack would go back to the drafting board or, or Ditko would go back and, and draft it up in kind of layouts. And then from there, Stan would really start getting into the dialogue and what the characters are going to say. So we kind of took that approach for for these tie-ins because everything was in motion and things were so fluid on the on the filmmaking side. We wanted to make sure that we could still pit, still get great art because art doesn't happen overnight. It, it takes artists as long as it takes them to make good products. And then we would kind of adapt the story as much on the fly without, again, going off the rails. That was kind of the, the, the format approach. And storytelling-wise, it really was going to the development execs and, and the creators and saying, look, we know we're making this, we have the opportunity. And I, I would come with, most of the time, I would come with like a bullet list of two or three ideas that I'd say, do you think any of these are viable? Do you think we could go down any of these rabbit holes? Most, more often than not, they'd say no. Like, no, 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 those are, we're going to save those, we're going to save those. But every once in a while, you get like a good one and, and, or just one that was, everyone felt comfortable enough with that you could tell a good story. And, and then the editors felt that there was enough action in it that it could make a good comic book. So it really was just kind of, making your case creatively and artistically so that you can make the best thing possible for a, a franchise that was gaining a lot, a lot, lot of momentum. Had you had the intentions or aspirations to be a comic writer prior to being put in that situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, with what's so not ironic, but just kind of like the cosmic kismet of it all is that as a kid, I did want, I, it was my dream to work for Marvel Comics. Like Marvel Comics, not Marvel Studios, because Marvel Studios wasn't a thing back then. Right. It was just kind of like, I, I would love to work for the comics. I, I think at the time I wanted to be more of an artist, but I did want to work for comics. So when I got the Marvel Studios gig, it was like, okay, well, I'm working at a, a studio because my tastes and my, my desires to be into filmmaking kind of grew later in, in my adult, young adult life. And then I got the job and it was like, well, I'm working at a film studio that's adapting comics into the movies. Okay, this is an interesting turn of the events. And then from there, it was like, oh, we're going to make comics based on these movies. So I'm going to make comic books based on the movies, based on the comic books, which I like is good. Okay, this all seems about right. So it came full circle. And, uh, and as you say, like, it, it was my desire to, to want to write yeah, of course, I, I would have loved to write. I was, I was friends with a lot of the writers at the time on the books, and I enjoyed their products, and I enjoyed the books for what they were and, and all the kind of stories you could tell in the comics that when the opportunity arose and, and Bill had asked, like, do you want to do this? I, I said, without question, I want to. I, I just, I'll need help. <laughs> I'll, need, I'll need teachers, and please, please don't get mad at me if I don't know what I'm doing. And then it just kind of, you know, the confidence grew from there because everyone was so gracious with their time, all the editors and the assistant editors and, and the colors, everyone knew that we were just trying to make a really good book. You know, you, you're, you're not trying to fake this. You, it's not, oh, fake it till you make it. It really is. No, I, I, we know we have these stories. How do we tell them the best we can with all our talents combined? And it, it really brought my favorite thing about comics, especially making them, is the collaboration. And it really kind of instilled that that uh, modus operandi in me is wanting to do more, just just get hungry to keep collaborating with people and bringing stories to life. Does knowing so much about the comics and about the, the history and the world ever feel limiting to writing in the sense that, oh, I know so much that I can't take this creative direction because they did this in the past? Or, you know what I mean? Does it ever feel like you're kind of blocked a little bit because you knew so much about the history? Yes and no. I think because of the, the fortunate circumstances of the, the tie-ins being connected to a property that, by and large, was new for a lot of people, that not everyone who was reading, the audience wasn't 
literally everyone who's read every comic that I have or read them throughout the years. So at that point, I kind of took it as as much as the movies were a celebration of the comics in a new in a new way. That it was I would try and come up with stories that I felt meant a lot to me uh, when I was a kid. So I, I think I actually got to write in my forward when they collected all the Marvel Cinematic Universe in this big omnibus. The editor of the trade collection asked me if I could do the forward, which I more than happy to do. And I got to talk about, I think it was Iron Man 300, which was the first comic I ever saw in a comic shop, a literal comic shop. And they kind of like turned my taste into the, into the medium. And I got to pull so much from that particular issue as far as things that, because it imprinted on me so young and it really was kind of the, okay, well, I remember what this meant to me when I saw this comic. So I would love to make stories that hopefully mean as much to someone who, who hasn't ever read comics before or who loved the movie and who wants to read comics that they take something from one of the stories i make i was making so that it wasn't that it was like holding me back or an albatross around my neck in any stress it was if anything it was it it emboldened me to want to do something that had had been done before but through my voice you know i'm not i'm not so modernist i think nothing everything has been done before but i'm going to do it my own way i'm not trying to do new for new sake i want to do me for mine's sake. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And have you since moved, uh, I know you said you work on your own creator-owned comics as well. Have you moved to the non-Marvel method of writing? Because I know on this podcast we've discussed the two and some people prefer one, others prefer the other. Do you have a preference now? I only prefer the Marvel method when I'm working with with new artists, especially if there's someone I haven't worked for, with before, and and definitely on the creator owns because I feel people take for granted. It, it is a lot of writers have said, and a lot of editors have said that it feels like a very writer type industry right now, which you know everyone can take or leave it. I, I honestly, because I only know what I, I've done myself, I can't speak for the entire industry, but I know that I do enjoy writing writer method because it does feel like we're kind of starting together it doesn't feel like i've blocked every scene because having done you know filmmaking shorts and and extended knowing that 
it's one thing to direct a feature with your, your vision in mind and all that. But when you're on set, you know, things change and, and the world kind of moves around you and there's the chaos of the set and you only have so much time in a day. So the collaboration with the, the crew and, and the creative team that you have on set is how that movie that or that final product actually comes together. So I kind of took that same approach with the Marvel method where it's like, look, I, I know things change. I know some ideas sound good one way, but then you draw it. If, if an artist takes it and goes a different direction, I like to applaud that, especially if it, if it takes the product into greater horizons. So I do like the Marvel method because it, it's so open and it allows that kind of back and forth between the artist and the writer to, to build something together. But at the same time, sometimes there's the unique, not disadvantage, but the unique situation where I've worked with uh, a lot of artists who are around the world and some where uh, English is not their first language. So there is a language barrier to to getting to you know a, a good product that we are mentally on the same page that having a more beat for beat script or final script does help just to get past that simple factor of the language so it is i do like both for what they're for and it does depend on the project and who you're working with really i wouldn't say i'm for or against one or the other but i do quite enjoy the marvel method tell us about your filmmaking have you always been a filmmaker where did the short film play into or overlap uh with your time at marvel and are you still making films? You're focusing on comics. Tell us kind of where you are right now. I am focusing on both, actually. Quite this parallel path thing, as it were. Uh, I definitely collaborate a lot with my colleague Adam Davis, who who is my co-conspirator, as I like to joke around. But we definitely were, and he was the uh, the writer and a director that we worked on No Touching, the, the action short film you had mentioned, and that was it was very much a crossover into our day job because. Through one of the writers of the films, we were able we were introduced to Heidi Moneymaker. She's the stunt double for Black Widow for Scarlett Johansson. She has been since the beginning of Iron Man for Iron Man Two. So we were introduced to her, and we were talking. We had written uh, an action feature for to start her on spec because she was trying to build uh, such a project. And then as we were talking, we we heard that she had mentioned that. She's good friends with Zoe Bell, who we were aware of just from uh, Adam being a huge Kill Bill fan because Zoe was the stunt double for The Bride for Uma Thurman. So all these conversations turned into, oh, you guys are friends. That, that's wonderful. Like, do you guys ever work together in, on front in the camera? And they had said no. And we said, well, would you like to? Would you guys want to kind of team up and, and build a short film? And that's when we decided to, we all met, we all introduced ourselves to each other we, uh, for a dinner one night. And then... We pitched the idea of a haunted house uh, short where the, the girls turn on the, the aggressive men who are running the place and they kick some ass. And we said, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's let's try and do this. So we did the Kickstarter and we crowdfunded and we built it and we, we shot it. And, and then it's now out, out in the world. So that was very much kind of overlapped into into the, uh, the Marvel Studios experience. So trying to do a day job while also trying to do directing and, and writing and, and, and building a short film. A lot of co my colleagues have done this, but it doesn't make it any easier. No, it's definitely a, a test of metal, but it was it was so rewarding. And, and we got to work with such great people, the crew and the cast all combined. It was one of my favorite experiences. So that being said, I, I get to also work with a lot of the creator-owned uh, stories that I'm working with. I get to go back and, and I'm talking and working with a lot of the artists that I was introduced to on my tenure on the Marvel Cinematic books. So it's just kind of still celebrating in a new way. We're getting to tell new stories that aren't necessarily superheroes, some superheroes, some not, but uh, and a lot of uh, new stories and new horizons to talk about. 
And will you continue to work in the extended experience world on a professional basis? Is there a future at, let's say, a Star Wars or another a big company like a Marvel that is looking for someone that has the experience that you have? I definitely think so. I think, uh, you know, I'm definitely, I am available. I'm working with a lot of people and I'm, I'm out there discussing the, the possibility, as you'd mentioned, because a lot of it is, is kind of franchise management at the same time. Right. It's, it's seeing what's right for the brand, not just get out there and do everything. Because again, there's only so much money in the pot. So you want to work on the right event and you want to work on the right experience, whether that be a live event, whether that be a tie-in. Uh, something, whether that be a game, whether that be a movie or a TV series, or even a comic series. It's everyone is kind of open to the all the different mediums because the audience is, is getting to that point where they're hungry for all the different mediums, which is awesome, by the way. Because even when I was first starting at, at, at the studios, we didn't have you know a, a quarter of the different things we're able to do now, let alone VR. Oh my God, it's so cool. Like AR and just what, what these things are capable of doing as far as 360 experience. This is, the future is awesome, man. <laughs> you just alluded to the fact that everything kind of has changed over time. How has extended experience changed as the industry has changed? I don't know if anybody saw this crazy Marvel movie kind of uh, madness. I don't know if anyone predicted it. It's clearly uh, here. How has extended experience kind of changed alongside that? Uh, and at the same time, with uh, streaming and the way people consume uh, media altogether and binging and that kind of thing. I think the, it was the last point you had mentioned that that is really what's the guiding star is that how are people consuming it and how many people are consuming it and how often, you know, obviously streaming is a big deal. Uh, and it, that is, that is the next big thing that everyone's talking about right now. But as you talk about the interactivity of it, can you engage further than just a passive experience of watching? Can you go into a 360 experience where you're looking around a world as well as engaging with characters off screen like, and stuff like that. And these, these are technologies that are being developed now that as soon as the audience has the right tools to experience it in an affordable manner, not just the people who can afford a $2,000 rig or, or things like that, once it starts you know, blending more with the, the cell phone experience and, and it feels good enough and you get as much as you want out of it without having to pay as much as some of these things actually do cost. I mean, there are definitely standalone events that you can go to in a lot of malls right now where things like The Void or, or Within and, and, and kind of a blend of those where you put on a rig and you, and you go through an experience almost like you're paying to go into a haunted house, except you're going to a Star Wars planet or you're going to go into the world of Wreck-It Ralph. You know, it's a lot of the VR is, is bringing some new form of audience together. But as it becomes easier to access and it becomes more lucrative to the people who are trying to, to get those ideas out there, I think it's going to extend even more. I think definitely interactivity is going to be the key and the, the affordability, I think, is going to drive how much studios and brands are going to continue to look at this technology to, to continue exploring it. Is there one thing across extended experience as a comic writer and as a director, would you say there's any one thing that those three roles have in common? I think it's all storytelling. I mean, I, it may sound kind of, especially for the writer experience. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it is. People want to be told a story, but at the same time, it's getting to, it's almost like those choose your own adventure stories now, where it's like, I want to kind of tell the story along with the storytellers, which is really cool as a kid who, who loved those kind of books, or I had, I had a grandparent 
really liked to tell kind of his tales that way. Like, do you want to go left or right? And he would kind of develop his macro story on the fly. And I, I think the fact that real storytelling now and just extended storytelling is kind of taking those cues that's kind of like the blend of it all and comic writing you know it, if you're out there and you're public and you especially when you're doing an ongoing series you've you've finished one arc or two arcs and everyone's really aware of it at a certain point that they become vocal about what they want to see happen and just much like i mentioned talking going to the fan sites and using those as kind of the light the divining rod to to guide what you feel is right for a character that is kind of that conversation with the, your audience and the social media and all of that included is that we're all kind of telling the story together. And that's where it's the best thing is it takes a life on of its own as in, as is pretty much defining fandom at large. You know, you, you have all this great story that you've, you've done your experience, especially with a film, you've, you've shot it, you've sent it out there in the world and then the fans take it and make it their own and make memes out of it and gifs. And you see all over the internet. So, it's uh, it's just kind of the, the nature of things now because of the technology. What's the end game or what's the, the plan for Will Corona Pilgrim in the future? What do you see yourself? Is there a limit? What's the... Oh, there's no know? limit, man. I'm, I'm just getting started. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there is no end game. The end game is, you know, is when I'm dead. Uh, it's just continuing and, and fighting for good creative and working with a, as many talented individuals as I'm, as I'm able and as they are willing. And just working on stuff that fans and, and an audience can be excited about. As excited as I am to create it, I want to make it for fans who are excited to experience it and digest it. I think that's as long as that's happening, uh, I, I'm smooth sailing, buddy. Well, would you like to answer some questions we like to call a series of seemingly random questions? Are these like karaoke thoughts? Like what's your karaoke song kind of question? <laughs> well, you know what? We're adding that. What's no, okay. your karaoke uh, yeah, song? The answer is run around too for that, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I'll happily answer your Q&A. Let's roll. All right. First question. What's your karaoke song? Run around too by Dion. <laughs> Love it. Really live in the <laughs> I can tell you, man, because no one expects a, a six foot three giant to come up and try and belt that out to limited success, but it really gets everyone jazzed. All right. Next question. What would you suggest... Or is there one thing you would suggest to any aspiring writer, comic book writer, uh, director, or someone who wants to work more on the professional side? Is there one piece of advice from your career that you'd want to pass on? I mean, people take uh, professionalism for granted. I know it, it, it sounds kind of like it's a no-brainer, but being able to, to hold yourself and, and, and you know articulate what it is you're trying to do in a very humble and collaborative manner, that'll never go out of style. You know, it's knowing that, especially with, with filmmaking, because filmmaking is radically uh, collaborative with how many people you're talking to at any given time, especially for the writers. And, and for comic medium, I'd say it's the same. You know, you, you want to talk to every fan as if you're talking to your artist or you're talking to your editor. You know, it's, it's having that nurturing and, and, and helpful and collaborative manner. I do think that that is definitely what I've tried to do and I, I continue to try to do, uh, strive to do. And I, I, I do think that would help a lot of people. What motivates you to keep doing what you're doing every day? My family. Without a doubt, I've got I've got two little boys and a, and a beautiful wife, and they are, they're the reason for everything. So yeah, that and faith in God. So keep on trucking. Comfort foods can sometimes help combat writer's block, or so we've been told. Is there a particular comfort food that you go to? 
you know, I, it's like, I, I do love food, man. Don't get me wrong, but I don't necessarily go to food for inspiration. I do love the taste of coffee or some good whiskey, but that's not necessarily like a, like I, it'll cure a writer's block. It's more just an, a general <laughs> enjoyment of those two things. I think it's just clearing my head and talking to new people or listening to new music or just really just getting out of my shell is, is what helps get me past writer's block. If you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, what would you ask and why? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's a fun one. Oh, um, what's your favorite band name? I had this thought the other day because I don't know. <laughs> this may have trended already. Because I, I saw the name, me first in the Gimme Gimme's, I, I honestly don't even remember what song it is, but I started laughing so hard when I saw that that was the name of the band. And I, I really am curious what a lot of people think is their, their favorite band name. Not necessarily favorite band, but just the names themselves, because there's some funny and clever and great names. Another one that came to mind was the Oneaters or the Wonders from That Thing You Do, how they wanted to spell wonder with O-N-E, like wonders, but everyone called them the Oneaters. I thought that wow. was a start. Um, that's a great question. Next question, I would normally ask you your own question, uh, but you kind of referenced a couple. Is there one favorite band name that comes to mind for you? Oh, definitely me first in the Gimme Gimme's. I <laughs> love it. At least right now. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I would love to even dive deeper and, and hear what other people come up with. That I would love to see that trending on Twitter just to see what people come up with. Because not just fake names, like real real band names. Like, no, these existed and they are they are who they are. We're going to ask it. Next question, if you could be any of the characters that you have written for, which character would you choose? Mm, oh, man. Oh, I've written some awesome characters. I mean, I wouldn't want all the emotional turmoil, but I really love Winter Soldier. I definitely love what Brubaker did for him, and I was glad. I, I was so happy to get to even touch upon that, that character in that world for the Civil War and all that. So, yeah, I, I'd probably say Bucky Barnes, Winter Soldier. What's one TV show or movie? that you're watching or have been watching lately that inspires you from a writing perspective? Oh, wow. These are good questions. Oh, man. I Thank wish you. I, let's see. Okay. Well, we did just finish Game of Thrones, but I don't know if that's necessarily what I want to I don't leave. That. <laughs> uh, we can not, talk not, about that if you want. To knock anybody or, or celebrate anything. I, look, we thought it was fine, but um, I let's see. It's something that inspires me, though. You know, I have my, my kind of general list of films that I go to. More films, but I definitely, let's see, TV. Did you say TV or film? Or TV, TV, TV or film. TV or film. Uh, you know, I have a genuine love for uh, for Kingdom of Heaven by Ridley Scott. Uh, this is kind of one of my top films. Uh, among a very bizarre list of favorite films, but there's just something about the technical aspect of, and the grandeur of, of the, the nights and, and all that stuff that just kind of sets my creative mind on fire. That I, I do like watching it, and the score is is one of my favorite scores. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's like, what would, what would it be like sitting across from Edgar Allan Poe and and just trying to meet eyes with this guy? Uh, that'd be insane. Uh, no, I, yeah, probably Poe, but I have no idea where I would take him. Probably, probably to like, like Disneyland or something and get him out of his element. <laughs> Maybe I get some, uh, funnel cakes at Six Flags. Come on, man. Why are you, what's with the straggling? <laughs> Is the life of a writer glamorous? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you know, what is li- life can be glamorous, and, and there's a lot of fun things, uh, depending on what you're writing on and, and who you're writing for. Uh, but, it, you know, life is life, man. <laughs> you, you work, and, you, and you, you put in your time, and sometimes you get to do some cool, cool things. I've luckily and, and so fortunate to have been able to work on the amount of things and been invited to the types of uh, tables and creative conversations that I have in my career. And that part is a is a different kind of inspiration and, and grat, you know and, and glamour that you know it's not all parties and, and sunshine but there's there's some really cool things you get to do and a lot of really cool people you get to meet what's one thing about you or your career that nobody knows well do people know about me i don't know i wouldn't even know they know anything i think this is all going to be new information uh, let's see well i'm catholic i don't know a lot of people don't know that but it, it's important to me and now they know. And now they know. Yeah. Next question. Second to last question, I should say. Franchises. You mentioned them earlier. We live in an age where everybody wants to see something in a franchise. How does an aspiring writer who wants to get their own IP made into a movie or a TV show, how do they get that made in this kind of climate? I'll let you know, man. I think it's, it's different for different people. and I think it really... If all you're making a story for is to to make a big film or, or a television show, it's always going to come back to how much those cost. So I don't think it's any you know secret why a lot of things don't get made because at the end of the day, it, it, there's so many people, so many people to get employed that unless you're just lucky and, and have the talent and your story is something really cool that's fresh enough but familiar enough and gets to the right hands then maybe it does or does not happen but i think if you're telling stories that's again why comics can be so fun is that it's easy to not easy but it's easier to tell comics when 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 the budget and the price point is so much lower than uh millions or hundreds of millions of dollars but that doesn't mean that those experiences aren't out there should you tell a story well told in in a medium that's either if it's a short as we were able to do with no touching or if it's with a a creator-owned comic or a web series or a web comic series you know everyone's got stories and and it's nice to know that as we had talked about extended experience and all these different ways to tell stories now you know i had never thought i'd ever work on a theme park and then i got to be invited to that table so these are things that be hungry for telling be hungry for the telling and be, again, bringing humility and, and grace under pressure and, and just a kind of a genuine can-do attitude of, of working and an ethic that people can applaud. And I think it, your time will come. Next up, did you want to plug any particular project? I know you can't talk about yeah, certain I, comics. Or... I would love, I mean, I'll plug some friends stuff. I would love, yeah, I'll, sure. love I'll come back. I'll come back to you and I'll, if you guys will have me. But uh, definitely I want to promote Jorge Fornes was a good colleague of mine. He's doing a lot of work on the Batman book right now. Goran uh, Suzuka's and Garth Ennis's uh, Walk Through Hell I've been reading and, and they're, you know, uh, Goran's a friend. And there's just so many good pieces out there to be reading or digesting in a comic medium. Jerry Dugan is always uh, a perfect human being and, and individual, and he's always putting stuff out there. Uh, I wish I had something specific of my own, but hey, that's all happening right now. That's true. Uh, the last question is the most important question. Did you have fun today? I had a great time. This is awesome. awesome Thank you man. so much. It's awesome to get to know what you do and hear about all three different kind of worlds. So yeah, man, thanks for sharing that with us, and uh, thanks for your time. 
Absolutely, guys. Anytime. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.